1 Corinthians chapter 16, and when you get there, if you would please stand, and uh, we will read the Word of God together. First Corinthians chapter 16, and we begin in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. That was what I was talking about during announcements, collecting for our missionaries. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as am I. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. And you can be seated. Now, let me just say, before I get going this morning, uh, there's, there's just a lot to say in this passage. In fact, there's so much to say in this passage. Uh, I wrote my introduction, and I wrote about the context, and then I was out of time. So, so we read this, and, and we'll, we will come back to it next week. Um, but I, I, there, there's just so much in this passage. And really, I, I want you to understand that the guiding principle in this section, verses 5 through 11 is really Paul helping the Corinthians understand why he's not coming. He's basically saying, look, I'm not coming to you. And for the very reason that in verse nine, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. And so what I want to do is spend some time this morning talking about effective ministry, um, just in a very general sense. And, and I say that because absolutely every single Christian is called to a ministry of some kind, or maybe even multiple ministries. Uh, the word ministry literally means to give out, to dispense something to other people. When Paul says that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry in Ephesians chapter 4, literally that, that, that idea of ministry is equipping the saints for service. That's, that's literally what he says there. They are, they are equipping the saints for, for service. It's the same word we get, deacon. Paul says that believers, every single believer, has the ministry, the service of reconciliation. We all have the ministry of proclaiming the reconciliation that God has brought forth through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place for our sins. And so when we say that someone has a ministry, it's that they're serving in some way. And I think that's really important for us to understand. And I think even more than that, I think it's best when believers are serving in the way in which the Holy Spirit specifically has gifted them. 
We serve in different ways. These could be official sort of capacities, like being involved in music or preaching or leading a Bible study, or, or maybe you clean the church, or maybe you are involved in what we might call off-radar kind of ministries, like taking care of your next-door neighbor who's, who's dying, or praying for the families in our church, or helping the poor, witnessing to your coworkers, raising your kids, and that sort of thing. All believers are called to be building up the body of Christ with spiritual gifts that God has given us, and we're also called to go make disciples of all nations, not only proclaiming the gospel, but also raising up people in the truth of the word of God. But here's, here's the rub, and I think we all have to, to kind of wrestle with this a little bit. At, at some point, whatever ministry all of us have, we're all just going to ask, is this really worth it? Is, is this really effective? Is what I'm doing right now the best possible thing that I could be doing for the kingdom? Is, is it worth all of this effort? Or, or would it be better for me to go elsewhere? Would it be better for me to do something else, anything else? I, I think anybody and everybody who takes the command to go make disciples seriously wrestles with this tension. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you're, you're wondering, is, is staying at home with the kids really worth it? Like, could I be used by God somewhere else, doing anything else for the kingdom? You know, people who are involved in the music ministry. I know people involved in music ministry, and they're like, is standing up in front of people for 20 minutes every Sunday, like, is that really doing anything for the kingdom? Is, is my time really best spent there? Are people really being sanctified by your efforts to lead a Bible study or family devotions? Is trying to love that neighbor that's, like, impossible? Is that, is that really worth it? Is it really worth going out of your way to try to love them? I think most believers want to know that what we're doing has some sort of effect for the kingdom, has some sort of impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says in verse 9, for a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me and there are many adversaries. What Paul is saying is he's staying in Ephesus. He's staying across the bay because he's got an open door of effective ministry. It's more effective for him to be in Ephesus than to be in Corinth, which is pretty amazing given the train wreck that Corinth is in. He's saying what's going on in Ephesus is so huge. I need to stay here and I need to finish ministering here. In verse 9, he uses this word effective. In the Greek, it's Energase, we derive our word energy from it. It means powerful. There's powerful things going on in Ephesus. Things are active. It's used to, this word is used to describe the word of God in Hebrews chapter 12. It's living and it's active. Energase, it's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul says in Philemon chapter 1 verse 6 that he hopes that the sharing of their faith may become effective or powerful. Philemon, keep preaching the gospel, but I hope it's the Spirit of God that comes into the hearts of these people and applies this gospel message to their heart in a powerful way. In the same way, he says, a wide door of effective, powerful ministry has been opened. And, and I, I, again, I, I think as Christians, that's what we all want. We all want an effective ministry, a, a powerful ministry. We want to believe that our contribution matters, even if it's small. Is this really doing something for the kingdom? I'm reading through uh, 
uh, Laura Hillenbrand, she wrote a book called Unbroken. It's the biography of Louis Zamperini. I'm not done with it, so don't tell me the end. All right, I'm almost there. But uh, Louis Zamperini was a, a world-class miler, a runner, in, uh, before World War II. He was captured in the Pacific Ocean. His bomber went down. He was a bombardier. Um, in World War II, different people played different roles in the war. Some people in the States, they rationed gas. Other people, they donated metal. Ladies went to work in factories to, to provide goods for the war. Men signed up for the war. Every, uh, everyone understood that their contribution, whether big or small, was aiding in the effort. And because it mattered, people had hope and people kept going. And one of the things that Zamperini was struggling with while he's in a prisoner of war camp was that he didn't feel like he was contributing to the war. And so what the prisoners started to do is, was doing little things, anything they could, to help aid the war. So they could, they could actually take little jobs to, to earn extra food. So they would go and they'd, they'd sew up these ammo pouches, and they'd sew them really slowly. They'd like do a couple of ammo pouches a day. And they'd sew them in such a way that if you actually put ammo in them, they'd break. Or if they were called to load ammunition, they'd load it incorrectly so the guns would jam. They would steal little things from the guards. It was all small stuff. It was really small stuff. But it was something that aided the war. It was something that gave them purpose and meaning to keep going on, to keep fighting, even in their POW camp. And that's what we all want in regard to the kingdom, I believe. We want to pitch in. We want to be effective. Oftentimes, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis doesn't feel like it's all that effective. <coughs> And because we're not content with being faithful on a day-to-day -day basis, I think that we really look to worldly ways in which we measure effectiveness. So before we even get to the context here, I, I want to give you just, just five ways that the world measures effectiveness that Christians often adopt as well that are bad ways to measure effectiveness. Okay? The first is numbers. Just looking at numbers. We are obsessed with numbers. And the reason that we like numbers is because they're the easiest thing to track. They really are. It's hard to measure how sanctified someone is. How much more like, G are they a three on the scale of one to, what, ten? Like, what's the number of sanctification? How do you know? What week is it? We don't know. There's no measurement guideline for that, but it's easy to tell people our GPA or our starting salary or church size or how much money was raised for a cause. Christians, along with the world, have glommed onto numbers for a long, long time. Even in America, this is true. George Whitfield and Charles Wesley affected and attracted tens of thousands of people to hear the gospel. How do we know they attracted tens of thousands of people to hear the gospel? Because they counted and the up-and-comers of that generation, they were lauded based on how big of a crowd could they gather together. I might step on some toes here, but more recently, Billy Graham was famous for drawing tens of thousands of people. I know people who came to faith in Jesus through Billy Graham's ministry, snuck up to go downstairs to watch TV, to watch a Billy Graham crusade, heard the gospel, and they got saved. But I have to tell you that Billy Graham was a compromiser from the very beginning. He joined his ministry to the Roman Catholic Church and to other liberals who denied that Jesus even rose from the dead. He championed easy believism. Just slip up your hand, come forward. God will take you as you are and leave you just the way you came. 
but we laud him for the numbers. Sadly, at the end of his life, you can, I just watched it this morning again. You can go and click on a YouTube, Billy Graham, Robert Schuller interview, where he denies the exclusivity of the gospel. Anybody will get to heaven, whether they've ever heard of Jesus or whether they've ever heard of the gospel. But he attracted hundreds of thousands of people, didn't he? And we think he's affected because of numbers. And at the end of his life, he denies the exclusivity of the gospel of salvation. While I'm stepping on toes, let me talk about Rick Warren. He raised some stir this last week or two weeks ago. He's the founder of Saddleback Church in California. He's the author of The Purpose Driven Church. And he recently boasted at the Southern Baptist Convention in front of thousands of people that he had preached 120, he had a list. He had a paper with a list of all these numbers. This is where I got this. He had preached 120 Harvest Crusades before he was 20. He's baptized 56,631, not 32, 31 believers. That's 36 a week. That's hard to believe that he's actually done that. He has sent out 20,869 members to 197 nations. 78,157 people have signed up for his membership covenant, and somehow he has trained 1.1 million pastors. That's four pastors per hour for the last 30 years, nonstop. That's what he boasted in. And then, a few days after that, he said he got 4,800 emails thanking him for all his work. He is the king of pragmatism. And I have to be honest with you, he is not the king of faithfulness. And I can, can I just be straight with something in our own backyard? Even as we're praying for kids who are going to go work at camp. There are people who believe that how many campers come to camp and how many people raise their hand or make some sort of profession or whatever is the way to, a, to evaluate effectiveness in ministry. And I am here to tell you, don't you believe it. It is not about numbers. Those numbers don't matter. Because if their name is not written down in the book of life, it doesn't matter if they're written down in some book at camp. It doesn't matter. You know what matters? Faithfulness to the gospel. Faithfulness in preaching Christ crucified and raised from the dead. That's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. You want to talk about numbers? How many disciples did Jesus have? He had 12, really 11, because one was a traitor. And really of that 11, there were only three that were tight. There were only three. At the end of his life, everyone had abandoned him except a few gals around his cross as he died. You guys, it's easy to be consumed by numbers. Church size, ministry size, cash flow, how many downloads, how many clicks, how many likes, how big your family is, what your reach is. There's only one number we need to be consumed with, and that is the number one. God. What does God think of our ministry? What does God think of our faithfulness? What does God think of where he's put us? Are we being faithful right where we are? 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required, required of stewards to be faithful. That's all we're called to do. Whoever is faithful with little will be faithful with what? Much. Be faithful with the little you have. The second dangerous thing to evaluate our ministry based on is popularity. 
popularity. This can be related to numbers, but it's not always. This is usually more how, the, how much the world likes us or our perceived idea of the reception of the gospel. Man, people are really responding to the gospel. Well, responding how? Responding how to the gospel? You know, the parable of the four soils. Those two middle soils responded positively to the gospel. For a while, anyway. They were really excited. One was super excited. Popped up, persecution came, gone. That was the rocky soil. Weedy soil hung out a little bit longer. Until the cares, the riches, the pleasures of the world drown them out. It's not salvation. Jesus was popular when he fed people, not so much when he preached. He went from 20,000 to 12 again in a matter of hours after he started preaching. They liked the food. They didn't like the message. When Paul was stranded on the island of Malta in Acts chapter 28, you remember he's sitting there by the fire. He's warming himself up, and a snake comes out, and it bites him. And the, the, the natives go, oh, he must be a murderer, and he's cursed by the gods. And so they sit there, and they watch for him to die. And he shakes the snake off into the fire. Ten minutes go by. He doesn't die, and they go, oh, he must be a god. Ten minutes, you guys. Like, that's how fast the popularity shifted. But we see the same thing today with the evangelical complex. Pastors who are Amazon bestsellers or New York Times bestsellers. Do you know there's a whole Christian organization that all their goal to do is to get your book to be on the bestseller list so that you'll get recognized and you'll become popular? And you need a popular guy to write the foreword to your book so it can become popular. And, and there's just this whole worldly thing. One of the reasons for Mark Driscoll's downfall years ago is that his own ministry bought a whole bunch of his marriage books to make it look like his sales were high so that he would be on the New York Times bestseller list. You guys, it's easy for the church to be influenced by this desire to be popular, by people to give us applause and praise, to do book promos and endorsements and giveaways. Maybe it's your Instagram following or your Facebook following or people who talk about you. Popularity like numbers is a dangerous game. Do we like applause? Do we like people's affection? Or do we like God? A third bad way to see if your ministry is effective is, is it new and improved? Again, this is just my introduction, so sorry. Is it new and improved? We like things that are new and improved. In fact, I, I think it's safe to say we kind of have a disdain for anything that's old. We don't like anything that's old. I remember in seminary, I had to read the 1689 London Baptist Confession. I'm like, 1689? That's like 400 years ago, you guys. Like, haven't they come up with anything better since? Well, <laughs> I don't know that they have, actually. It's pretty good. But we like new, we like exciting, we like shiny. And if it works for that person, it must work for us, right? I mean, it's new. They've, they've done all the research. But there's a saying about theology, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Because it stands on the word of God. It stands the test of time. But we see this all the time. New ways of doing ministry, new ways of praying for your family, new ways of preaching or teaching or discipleship techniques or disciplinary techniques or evangelism or so on. But rarely are these things faithful and good. They're usually just some spin on some old gimmick that's happened before. And any success that they might have is because it is somewhat based on the word of God. 
and, and maybe I'm just getting old and grouchy and get off my porch, you guys, but the older I get, the more I'm like somebody trying to advertise this new and improved way of doing ministry. It's almost like the more cynical I become toward the word new. What I want is, is it faithful? Is it faithful to the word of God? Does it please Christ because it proclaims him crucified faithfully? You think about the Reformation and the Reformers, Calvin, Luther, those guys. You know what they were doing? That word reform is that they were getting back to what the Bible said initially. They were going back to old. They weren't doing anything new. They were going back to old. It's like taking a, a, a beat-up car that you find at the junkyard, and, and you, you, you trick it out, and you, you refurbish it. You reform it. You're bringing it back to the original glorious condition. That's what the reformers were doing. And so we should always be asking ourselves, is what we're doing for the Lord in line with the original purpose of the Lord? Number four, easy. How your life is going and how your ministry is going, is it easy? A lot of times we think easy, oh, God's in it. Hard, oh, God's not in it. That's not always true. That's not always true at all. In fact, I would say rarely is anything easy worthwhile. When you look at all the verbs related to ministry, you realize they all indicate some kind of hard work. Like every single one of them. We are called to labor for the ministry. Hard work. Run. You guys know I hate running. But we're called to run. Sucking wind, breathing, leg cramps, run. We're called to work. We're called to strive. We're called to toil. These words are all the exact opposite of easy. There's, there's no easy in ministry. Is it hard to be faithful for the Lord? Yes. It's hard to walk as a believer in the midst of a crooked generation. Yes, and good. It should be. That's how we are going to shine as a light for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's just, you guys, there's just no way to easily build the kingdom of God. There, there's just not. It's hard. It's hard work, daily work. That's why we're called servants, and we're called slaves, and we're called workers in the vineyard, sweating under the sun. We're called under rowers, the lowest guys on the galley deck rowing the boat. All of those are descriptions of believers. So if you're thinking about buying a book or a ministry, and it's got the word simple or easy or something in the title, you can just throw that away. Because that ain't going to be faithful. You don't see nine hard steps to faithfulness. But that's probably the book you ought to be reading. Nine difficult ways to follow Jesus. That, you should pick that one up. The last way that we do not measure faithfulness is that it feels good. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment. <clears throat> now, I don't want to be a total killjoy. Okay, let me just say that serving the Lord is often very fun, and it's enjoyable, and it's rewarding, and it's great. I'm having fun up here. I don't know if you guys are having fun. But I like, I like ministry. It can feel good, to, just to be honest. Like, I think that's probably why most of you kids go work at camp. Like, it's a fun ministry. It's a good ministry. You guys, that's why I'm spending two weeks up at camp this year, right? It's fun. It's good. Like, I love it. So, so that's good. But ministry doesn't always feel good. And just because it doesn't feel good doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Sometimes when it doesn't feel good, it's because you're doing it right. You're being faithful. 
Jesus wasn't rejected by crowds and spit on and crucified because it felt good. His reward was on the other side of the cross. Here, Paul is telling the Corinthians how he is genuinely an apostle, and he shows it because he's willing to suffer so much. He says, look, you guys should know that I'm really, truly an apostle. I really, truly want your good because I'm willing to suffer. Now, he's going to say that sounds crazy because it sounds like he's embellishing his own sufferings. He's like, but you guys need to understand that I'm in this through thick and thin. So take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21 you know, the second half of 21 through 33. Look at what he says. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Three times, you guys, shipwrecked. Like, do you ever want to go on a boat with this guy? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and i'm not weak who is made to fall and i am not indignant if i must boast i will boast of the things that show my weakness the god and father of the lord jesus he who is blessed forever knows i am not lying at damascus the governor under king eridus was guarding the city of damascus in order to seize me but i was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Wow. See, we, we think of, of the Apostle Paul and we go, man, what an amazing guy. Look at what, how God used him. Did you see how God used him? You got to go through that in order to be effective out there. Rarely does God use our ease and our comfort and our luxury for the gospel and for his glory. We don't like ministries that are hard. We don't like to feel bad. But sometimes there are very good seasons, very tough seasons that we are called to go through. And listen, if we don't go through the tough seasons in faithfulness, there's no fruit. You have to go through the tough seasons in order for there to be fruit. It's easy to see other people that are in a good season or a happy season and long for what they have. Every month I get together with, with some of the pastors in the Deer Park area, and we've been doing this for six years now. And we're all in different seasons, all at different times, all rotating. And it's actually encouraging. Like, like there will be a brother, and he's like, man, it's just, it's just really hard at my church. I'm like, man, brother, I will pray for you. And I've been through that season, too. In fact, you prayed for me during that season. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we just keep going. We just keep going. There are seasons that feel good, and there are seasons, just to be honest, that feel almost debilitating. And we can rejoice in the good seasons. We can have fun. And we can praise the Lord for those good seasons. 
Praise God for those seasons. But effective ministry is often hard. So we don't judge our effectiveness by numbers or popularity or by new and improved or by easy or by feels good. All of those are bad ways. Now, that's the introduction. Let's talk about the context of our passage. Okay, turn over to Acts chapter 19. Remember, Paul says he's in Ephesus. That's where he's writing the book of 1 Corinthians from. He's in Ephesus. And he says, I'm not coming to you yet because I've got some stuff going down in Ephesus that needs to be taken care of. And so I think it'd be helpful for us to understand the context of what is going down in Ephesus that's preventing Paul from coming to Corinth. Why is he not going to Corinth? What do we see going on here? How can we discern effectiveness? And I got to be honest with you guys. If you are actually asking yourself, is what I'm doing effective for the kingdom? There's no easy answer for that. There's just not. There's, there's no like list of checkboxes. Sometimes it doesn't feel effective, and then you'll get something, and you realize, oh, what I've been planting for years has suddenly come to fruition. Sometimes it doesn't. It's hard. There's a lot of, there, there's no flow charts in the Bible. So, so I'm, just, I'm just here to say, I'm not, I'm not going to answer your question nice and clean on what an effective ministry is. There, there's, there's just no way. I think, I think here in Acts 19, we get a couple of glimpses as to maybe what might be effective. Okay? I'm not going to say this is absolute, but I think we see a couple of principles. In chapter 18 of, of Acts, we're in 19, but in chapter 18, we meet this guy named Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila share the gospel with him. He already knows something about the Bible, but they share the gospel with him, and he is converted. So we pick it up in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Luke says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were, then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So one way to know if your ministry is effective is if people start speaking in tongues. That's a joke. Laugh. It's a joke. No, I think the way that we see if your ministry is effective is if new, those who are new to the faith begin taking part in ministry as well. That's really the thing. Because look down at verses 8 through 10. So he's preaching, these 12 people come to faith, and then watch what happens, verses 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, this is the important part, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What did those new disciples do? They turned around and started engaging in the ministry right along with him. 
They saw what he was doing. They didn't just show up for Bible studies. They didn't just come and, and try and absorb stuff. That's good. But what they did is they took that ministry on themselves, and then they went out and they shared in the same thing. And they did the same thing. We were introduced to a man named Apollos. That's what happened to Apollos. In chapter 18, he gets converted. He already knows the Bible really well. He gets converted. But what happens in chapter 19, verse 1, is he goes to Corinth. He's a believer now. And he goes to Corinth. And that's actually what some of the stuff that we saw early on in the book of 1 Corinthians is that Apollos is there. And in fact, he's so popular in Corinth, they're dividing over him. And Cephas, and Paul, and Jesus. But people are getting saved in Ephesus. And they're taking the ministry burden on their own shoulders. They're turning around and they're going and ministering as well. The Holy Spirit is at work. And so Paul's left in Ephesus with these believers. And the church is growing. And people are ministering to one another. And they're ministering to unbelievers. And he goes, look, I can't leave that. That's a good work. That's a good thing going on. It's better than trying to clean up the mess at Corinth right now. These, these, these people are growing in the faith. They're growing in maturity. And they're preaching the gospel. And this is really important. Our ministry, all of us, our ministry is not just giving knowledge to people about the Lord and the Bible. Or just serving them. That's part of it. Part of our ministry is to make disciples who go and make disciples who go and make disciples. We make disciples who teach and preach and bring up other disciples. It's, it's having a larger view of the kingdom of God. And here that ministry, like I said, is growing. I said a few minutes ago that looking at numbers is a bad way to measure effectiveness. That's partly true. Only looking at numbers is a bad way to measure effectiveness. You can have a lot of numbers. You praise the Lord when those numbers are matched with faithfulness and growing maturity in Christ. That's when you can praise the Lord for numbers. If numbers are coupled with faithfulness, it's amazing. Charles Spurgeon preached to thousands of people every week. R.C. Sproul preached to thousands of people every week. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because numbers are coupled with faithfulness together. And Paul's ministry here is growing so much, and there's so much faithfulness going on, he has to rent the Hall of Tyrannus. We don't know what the Hall of Tyrannus is. We don't know if that was an official thing or if that was some guy named Tyrannus who owned a big hall. We, we just don't know much about it. But it seems like the sheer amount of people who are coming to faith in Jesus and are growing in faithfulness is an encouraging thing. And Paul says, i got to stay for that. They're, they're genuinely growing. What else is happening in Ephesus? True repentance is happening in Ephesus. Look at verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary... This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, by the way. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. You remember back in 1 Corinthians 12, we saw that the word miracles is often used in the Gospels and Acts as, as exorcism. This is the power of God being displayed over spiritual forces. The apostles all had this gift, and many believers in the early church had it as well. This gift seems to legitimize what Paul is doing, and the effect here is that many people repent. That's the key. Many people repent from their sin. They praise Jesus. They're extolling the Lord. That's great on the surface. Lots of people praise Jesus. Lots of people extol the Lord. But the question is, is their life transformed? Is their life changed? Do they repent from their sin? They might give lip service to loving Jesus, but does their life change? Here, they're not just giving lip service. There's also massive radical repentance. The people come and they proactively confess their sins. They proactively do it. They talk about the wickedness of their hearts and their actions. That's a powerful work of the Lord. And then they destroy their wickedness. They destroy it. Think about what happened here. They, they take 50,000 pieces uh, worth of books, worth 50,000 pieces of silver, and they burn them. I mean, if we were there, we'd probably say, hey, you know what we could do with these books? Is we go put them on eBay. And we could sell them. $5.5 million. That's what 50,000 pieces of, of U.S. silver coin is worth. We could sell them. $5.5 million, you guys. We could do a lot of ministry with $5.5 million. You know what the problem with that is? You're just simply selling sinful items back to people and profiting off of it. I mean, imagine if people repented from their pornography. Hey, you know what we should do? We should go sell all our porn for ministry. That would be amazing. No. No, that's disgusting. No, we burn that stuff. We burn it up in a, in a massive bonfire. That's what pleases the Lord. The smoke that goes up and is pleasing in his nostrils, he doesn't need the prophets from sinful items to further the kingdom, you guys. He needs repentance in the heart of people. That's what the Lord needs to use people. God is more pleased as the smoke of millions of dollars worth of magic books are burned in his honor as his people repent. So there's true repentance. The third thing, notice what's really powerful in this passage. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So not only are new believers taking ownership of ministry and they're, they're being involved. And not only are people genuinely repenting, but the word of God is increasing. It's kind of interesting. As you go through the book of Acts, this is something of a theme of the book of Acts, that the word of God just keeps expanding. It keeps growing. It keeps increasing. It's, it's powerful. We read in Acts chapter 6, 
the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. That's chapter 6. Chapter 12, same thing. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, and it happened here too. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When the word of God is advancing, you guys, effective ministry is probably happening. It's probably happening. In fact, turn back to Isaiah chapter 55. Maybe you have a ministry. Maybe you've got kids, maybe you've got coworkers, family, whatever it is, and you're not sure. Am I, am I being effective? Is this faithful? You know what you can give them to ensure that it's effective? Ensure that you're faithful? You can give them the word of God. You can give them the word of God. This is one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10. God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is what we put out over and over and over is the word of God. Why? Because it always accomplishes exactly what God intends. If it hardens hearts, then so be it. If it brings people to saving faith in Christ, then so be it. But we don't turn to anything else. Put it another way, if we have to turn to other things, gimmicks, strategies, other than preaching and teaching the ministry, it's probably not effective. Or if it is, it's just for a little season. Is the word of God spreading in your ministry? Is it your focus to proclaim the word of God, to teach the word to your kids and your family and your neighbors, or to aid in that teaching so that it can go on? If it is, can I encourage you? You have an effective ministry. You have the ministry that God will surely bless one way or another. He will use it for all of his purpose and for all of his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have called us through faith in Christ into your wonderful kingdom. And Father, we want to be effective. We want to be faithful. We want our lives to count and to matter. May you give us resolve to be saturated with your word so it would seep out from us at every, at every place. That people would be saved. The disciples would be raised up. That people would be matured. That your kingdom would be proclaimed for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.